my privilege this morning to be kicking off a new series with you. Uh, we finished with the book of James last week. Uh, I hope God ministered to you as much as He did to me in that series. Um, as we kick off a series around identity and sexuality, your immediate response might be, well, Gareth, as the straight, white, married at 24, married for almost 20 years with three kids guy, standing up there and talking about sexuality and identity, you're a hypocrite if you think you're better at this than anybody else. And you'd be absolutely right. Might I respond with that I don't think it matters who is standing up here speaking about sexuality and identity. They'd also be a hypocrite if they think they're better at this than anybody else. Just being deeply aware of my own inadequacies in identity and sexuality preparing for this series. I struggle with my identity and properly understanding who I am and I look in the wrong places for acceptance and validation and belonging and love. I struggle with my sexuality and being the husband of one wife and being faithful with my body and my mind. The reality is there isn't a person in this room who doesn't struggle with their identity and their sexuality, whether straight, gay, bi, trans, whatever. My wife walked behind me while I was writing this part of the sermon and she read over my shoulder. And she said, what do you mean you struggle with being the husband of one wife? <laughs> and I had to explain, as amazing and beautiful and wonderful and love of my life as you are, I'm not immune to sexual temptation. And there's not a husband in this room, I can't speak for the ladies, but there's not a husband in this room, no matter how much in love and no matter how amazing your marriage is, that wouldn't have to admit the same, at least to themselves, if not to everybody else. Here's the reality. When it comes to identity and sexuality, we're all facing stuff internally that is not great. Sometimes it's because of what you've done or are doing, the people you've slept with, the porn you're looking at the thoughts that come into your mind, the ways you're looking for acceptance and validation. Sometimes it's because of what's been done to you or is currently happening to you, a relationship or a person that has hurt or is hurting you. Sometimes it's the feelings and thoughts inside of us. We can't control our desires and how we feel about ourselves even though we wish we could. I'm single and my sexuality is burning up and it feels there's no way for me to deal with it. My marriage feels unfulfilling sexually, so I've turned to porn and I feel ashamed. I'm struggling to deal with how my sexuality has changed as I've aged. I feel like my sexuality has dried up and my spouse and my marriage are hurting. I'm attracted to people of the same sex as myself. My physical body and my feelings just, just don't gel. I feel like I was made in the wrong body. I've been physically and sexually hurt. That's all of us. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to be considering who am I? Who am I? And as, as we discuss who we are, made in God's image, male and female, we do so in conversation with our culture, our world, and the ideas and feelings that are in our own minds and bodies. 
And the conversation about identity revolves around sexuality. Who am I? Straight, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, asexual, or something else. More and more, the conversation around who am I revolves around sexuality, particularly if you're under 25. So if you're under 25, welcome. Particularly to our teenagers, welcome. To a large extent, you're on the cutting edge of this conversation. On the cutting edge internally, because as a teenager, these issues are very real in your body. And on the cutting edge culturally, thinking through these topics, I often come back to this reflection. I knew who the one gay guy in my high school was. My teenage daughter has more close friends who identify as something other than straight than the sum total of people I knew of who weren't straight throughout my entire high school career. And so our desire is to serve you as you figure out what does it mean to be me in a world that has given you so many options. We're taking eight weeks, four now in September, and then four in November after the school holidays to look at what it means to be made in God's image and how that affects our gender and sexuality because that's where the conversation is taking place. At every point along the way, we're going to realize before I can consider how I can love others who are broken and confused, I need the gospel to come and heal my sexuality and identity. We're going to consider sexual formation, marriage, singleness, gender, same-sex attraction and homosexuality, transgenderism, and gender and violence. In our prayer meeting this morning, Colin shared Psalm 25:10. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. And I just want to say this morning, all of the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. And no matter how you feel about these topics, what God wants for you is for you to experience his love and his faithfulness and his healing. So let me pray and we're going to dive into this. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will come and speak to us as your people, that what would shine through this morning is the truth of your word your heart towards us for healing and wholeness and completeness and experiencing your love. I want to pray for anybody for whom this is a difficult topic, which is all of us really, that I won't get in the way of what you want to speak to us, but that we would experience your heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. My title this morning is In Whose Image? In Whose Image? God's Image? Or my own. Let me introduce you to two stories. Two stories that speak to who you are and that try to explain what it means to be human. What it means to be you. The best you that you can be. We'll start off with the, with the biblical story. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Jumping forward to Genesis 2, that's the bird's eye view of creation. Genesis 2 replays it up close and personal, kind of rewinds and gives us the the in-person view. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs or took from his side and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib or from the side of the man that he'd taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they became one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So I'm not going to unpack everything in these two texts, but rather highlight the story they invite us into. The story of being made in God's image, because that's our primary identity. We are made male and female in the image of God. Now, the word used here for image is the same word that is used of an idol in a pagan temple. If you walk into a pagan temple, you'll see an idol or a figurine of the God that they worship there. The idol represents the invisible deity, so you can have some kind of idea of what this God is like, and it's often representative of that God. So, for example, a female fertility goddess might have many breasts to represent that fertility. Here's what Genesis 1 is saying. All of creation is the temple of our God. Everything throughout the cosmos is His and should worship Him. Within the temple of the cosmos, humans are meant to physically represent something of who God is. We're that figurine in the temple pointing to who God is. Now, there's clearly more to be made in God's image than these three things, but three of the key things Genesis 1 highlights when it comes to being made in God's image are ruling on his behalf in order to bring order and beauty, having intrinsic dignity, value, and worth, and being created male and female. As God rules over the heavens and the earth, he's placed us here on earth as stewards to rule on his behalf. As God brings order out of chaos, Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void, and God says, let there be light and let there be everything that there is, and he brings order to the chaos that existed previously, so we are to go out into the world and bring order where there is chaos. The command to Adam and Eve is, subdue the earth and fill it. In Genesis 2, God puts Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it to fulfill this command. And that's further illustrated in Genesis 4. As people spread out over the earth, the first city is founded. 
We meet the father or prototype of those who live in tents and raise, raise livestock, the father of those who play musical instruments, and the first successful forger of tools of bronze and iron. Because being made in God's image means we have a unique capability to bring order and beauty to disorder and chaos. Today, this extrapolates into being doctors and architects and engineers and teachers and moms and dads, artists, poets, musicians, chefs. All this creativity, all this beauty, all this order to chaos in the temple of creation to the glory of God as we in a small and humble way represent who he is. And so this speaks massively to our understanding of education and work and the creative arts. It's about far more than just sexuality. But those things are beyond our scope for this morning. The second thing the text highlights is our intrinsic dignity and value and worth being made in the image of God. We're in a unique position. Everything in creation points to the glory of God as an incredible work of art points to the glory of its creator. But we are not just one among many works of art. We are made in the image of God. Something of who the creator is rests in us and we represent him with everything we do. And we can't overstate this enough. In a world that wants to assign you value based on your performance and ability and cognitive functioning, we say no. Every single person is deserving of love and care and respect because we are made in the image of God. We are not just more complex and higher functioning animals. Psalm 8 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. We seem so small and insignificant in the grand scheme of the creation and the cosmos. You have made them a little lower than the angels. Emphasis on angels, not lower. That's a high position. And crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the work of your hands and put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wilds, the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Seen through what he's created and seen through mankind that he's made just a little lower than the angels above the rest of creation in his image. Thirdly, and perhaps most mysteriously, being made in the image of God is clearly linked to the reality that God creates us male and female. We'll unpack this in the second half of the series in November, but humans exist biologically, unequivocally as a binary, male and female. And the fact that we exist as male and female is not just for procreation or just for the pleasure of sex or just so we can complement each other, but because somehow that is part of being made in God's image. In Genesis 2, we see God creates Eve as a suitable helper for Adam. The word translated suitable is a compound word. It's made up of two different ideas. It's made up of the idea of like him and opposite to him, joined together in one word. Here's what God is saying. Adam, in order to complete the mandate that I have given you, you are going to need someone to come alongside you. Without them, you're not going to be able to do it. And you're going to be able to do it with them because they are both like you and opposite to you. 
being both male and female in some way helps us understand and represent more clearly who God is. If we reflect theologically for a moment, God creates us as a unified species with distinction among us, male and female. In the New Testament, we learn that God himself exists as unity and diversity. And so perhaps we can say that our distinctiveness as male and female might point to the distinctiveness within God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Scripture also describes God in both male and female terms. Generally male, primarily as father, but God is also described in female ways in Scripture. One very quick example, quite graphic example in Hosea, God describes himself as a mother towards Israel, teaching them to walk like a mother teaches a child, lifting them up to the cheek and feeding them. What is most clear is men by themselves and women by themselves are inadequate to image God properly. It requires both. So here's where we're at with identity from Genesis 1 and 2. Our primary identity is that we are created with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth above everything else in creation so that male and female together can paint a picture of who our good God is. That's worship with every part of our lives by bringing order and beauty to chaos and disunity as we rule over the earth on God's behalf. Because God has purposely designed us, this means there is an inherent order and intention to how we are made. For example, the way that male and female bodies, shall we say, line up in terms of reproductive organs is not simply chance. It's God's design and we need to pay attention. We can't just ignore how we're created. Because God has purposefully designed us, it means we exist for a clear purpose to worship God by pointing to who He is with everything we do. We don't just get to decide what our meaning and purpose in life is because God has created us and we are made in His image. Okay, that's the biblical story of who we are, who we created to be, what our purpose is, what it means to be human, what it means to flourish. Men and women together worshiping God by reflecting who He is as we bring beauty and order to a world marred by sin and suffering. Now let's consider an alternative story, the story the world tells. I want to do so through the lens that the Apostle Paul gives us in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 obviously doesn't describe the 21st century, but rather it describes the general state we end up in when we reject God as creator and ruler of all things. And the situation in Rome when Paul wrote Romans chapter 1 is actually very similar to our situation today in terms of how they understood identity and expressed it through sexuality. So, Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, those are his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became foolish and they became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. 
Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. So once again, I'm not going to be able to unpack everything in this text, but I want to extract the big idea from it and then show you how this plays out today. That's the big idea. God's anger, His wrath, is in the world because people reject a God they can clearly perceive and it ends up with them worshiping themselves, particularly sexually. Now, immediately you might have a problem with this as soon as we speak of God's wrath. I can't get into it fully, but in this passage, God's wrath consists of him allowing people to follow their own desires. The argument of Scripture is that without God, things are so bad that the worst thing that can happen is that God allows you to keep going in the direction you're heading in. And so if you struggle with the concept of God's wrath, can I ask you to not let it derail you here, please? Basically, if you reject God, He's going to allow you to do that. You're going to get what you want. It's going to turn out bad, but you get what you want. And so hopefully you can follow me and not let that concept trip you up. All people throughout time and place and culture have an understanding that there must be a God. Yes, people today reject that idea, but Scripture says that rejection takes place in the face of the obvious evidence of all of creation and our own human experience. There is a creator God whose power and divine nature can be seen through what He's created. As we live the lie that says we can be human without God, His wrath is to allow us to continue in that trajectory. And that trajectory leads to us needing to replace God with something else to find meaning and value and purpose and identity. Initially, it's through images that look like human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Ultimately, we search for the meaning and value and purpose that should be found through God and through, through ourselves and through sex. So that's the passage that describes what happens when we reject God. Let's see how that plays out in our world today. Not every person will hold each of these parts in exact detail. I'm describing the kind of general way the world thinks, the spirit of the age. And I'm not going to drill down into each of these, because then we wouldn't be out of here before dinner time, but we're going to go over them in the coming weeks. What happens in the 21st century when we remove God from the equation? Maybe another way to ask it is, how have we got to a place where even we as Christians feel confused about these issues? What has impacted our thinking that even we feel confused about these issues? Well, without God, there's no purposeful design. There's no inherent order to how our bodies are made. There's no intention to our anatomy. There's nothing to our reproductive organs beyond the random accumulation of evolutionary beneficial attributes acquired by natural selection. There's nothing to be learned from how we are created and how our bodies work beyond that simply how reproduction works. Without God, there's also no clear meaning or purpose to life. There's nothing concrete beyond ourselves to tell us what it means to be human, to flourish. And so the logical extrapolation that our world has made then is I decide for myself what my meaning and purpose in life is. That's what it means to exchange the image of the immortal God for an image made to look like mortal humans. I worship myself because I take all of my cues of what it means to be human from myself and from other people who think like me. And then because being happy feels better than struggling and strife and strain, 
I decide that my main purpose in life is to be happy. When I feel psychologically happy and fulfilled, then I'm living my best life. So my body means nothing beyond reproductive biology, and my happiness and my sense of well-being is the most important thing in the world, what ends up happening is that there's now a split between who I truly am and my body. I want to drill down on this point a little bit because it's vital to understand how the world thinks about transgenderism in particular, but it's also massively influential on other topics like abortion and, abortion and euthanasia, which we're not even going to be talking about. Without God, who we are is seen as separate from our physical bodies. We call this dualism. The idea that our mental or spiritual side is separate from our physical side. And it's exactly where the Greeks and the Romans ended up. It's exactly where they ended up. In biblical terms, we talk about the concept of embodiment. The idea that we are not separate from our physical body. Now, this may come as a surprise to you. Some of you might say, well, Gareth, doesn't the Bible also reflect that there's a split between our bodies and our minds, between who I am mentally and physically or physically and spiritually? And actually, not really. I'm not saying that the body and the mind is exactly the same thing, but they're inseparable because of how God has made us. Just as you do not exist as a person without your mind, you do not exist as a person without your body. Let me back this up biblically. Firstly, as we've already seen, God created us male and female. Not just accidental biology. The distinctiveness of your sex is part of what it means to be made in God's image. Secondly, the Apostle Paul doesn't seem to think that we can separate the physical and the spiritual. When he speaks to the Corinthian church about sleeping with prostitutes, he says, because Christ is in you spiritually, and you join your body physically to this prostitute when you sleep with her, you've joined Christ to the prostitute. And so clearly, he doesn't have this dualistic view of what happens with your body is completely different to what happens with your spirit. Thirdly, Jesus himself comes as fully human. God with us comes as fully human, fully embracing a sexed identity in the biological realities of personhood from birth. Fourthly, after the resurrection, Jesus has a physical body. It's not exactly the same as our bodies, but it's physical, able to be touched, able to eat a meal. So continuous with his pre-resurrection body that you can see the scars where the nails went through his hands and his feet and you can put your hand and feel where the spear pierced his side. Which brings us to our fifth point. Our eternal destiny is not a floating, incorporeal, spiritual existence. We're not little cherubs floating up in the clouds in heaven. Our eternal destiny is a new physical body in a new physical, perfected, without sin or any flaw, heaven and earth. Now, you might push back and say, but hold on, Gareth. When we die, we're no longer in our bodies. And Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How does that work? Reconcile that with what you've just said. Well, I can't. <laughs> I don't know how that works. We don't know how much of anything works when we die and we go to be with God. So we've got to be very careful. But we do know for certain the five points that I just laid out. And we know one more thing as well. We have one example in Scripture of interacting with people who've died and gone to be with God. Jesus goes up a mountain with his closest friends and followers, and he displays his glory. And Moses and Elijah, just to note, they've been dead for over a thousand years. Moses and Elijah appear with him. What does Peter say? 
Is he freaked out by these ghosts, these spirits? No, Peter says, paraphrasing slightly, this rocks, let's put up three tents for the three of you to stay in. So whatever it looks like when we die and we go to be with Jesus, when the disciples encounter over a thousand years predeceased Moses and Elijah, they feel it's appropriate for them to have a place to sleep. So clearly, even in that state, there's a level of embodiment. Denying God leads to dualism. You treat your body as separate and less important than your mind or your soul. Your mind or your psychological self or your spiritual self is where the true you is at. Being human is all about your psychological well-being, expressing your authentic self, which is radically different from Christianity. Your autonomous self is now free to impose your own interpretations on your body because your physical body is just raw biological material with no intrinsic design or purpose. Now, along the way, I'm going to show you how we as Christians end up getting confused and importing some of these ideas into our own thinking. Here's where that happens on this topic. We get this idea that there's a sacred, secular distinction. What is sacred is the spirit, the soul, coming to church, ministry, singing in worship. The secular is my body, perhaps my intellect, my day-to-day job. They're distinct and separate. Does any of that sound familiar? But that's not the embodied living the Bible leads us into. The gospel says we exist male and female in our bodies to point to and image God, which is worship, by taking charge of creation and bringing beauty and order to chaos and disorder as doctors and teachers and artists and poets and brothers and sisters and mom and dads and even as pastors. The next step the world makes is this. If who we truly are is who we feel ourselves to be and our bodies are just biological material, then there's a difference between a person and a human. Okay, now I know that this this is getting quite deep on the philosophy side, so just stick with me if these are new concepts to you. But this is where a lot of the intellectual debate is currently taking place. A human is just someone who is biologically human. A person is someone who has self-consciousness and awareness and desires. Because if what it means to be truly human or truly a person in this case is to be happy by fulfilling your desires, then the inability to express those desires or have self-understanding means you aren't actually a person no matter your genetics. This is where the debate on abortion and euthanasia currently sits. Certain humans, those who don't have self-awareness and ability to express or understand or even accomplish their desires, perhaps because of age or disability or level of cognitive ability or because they aren't yet born, aren't people so their life can be ended. Particularly if their existence, often birth, is going to affect the happiness of another person because that's preventing that person from achieving their true authentic self. That's the logical conclusion. And so any time we as God's people look down on anyone because of their skin color or their class or their gender or their disability or stage of development, We've allowed the world and the way the world views people and what it means to be human to distort the beauty of what God has made in us. We should be at the absolute opposite end of the spectrum from any kind of distinctiveness or favoritism or looking down on anyone as we understand the gospel. Psalm 139. 
For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I've already touched on this, but from the world's perspective, morality becomes being my authentic self. That's what it means to be human, so therefore that's morality, doing what makes me happy. There's no external standard to which I should be held because God doesn't exist. Two ways we get confused even as we follow Jesus. We get bombarded in the media and advertising and culture with the notion that life is about being happy and fulfilled. It makes so much sense. So on TV or among your friends... We see two amazing people who make each other happy and they aren't hurting anyone. They're simply two loving, consenting adults who are not married or or of the same sex or one is transitioned. Come on, Gareth, they're happy. That's what matters. And we begin to struggle with what the Bible teaches and what we see in the world around us because that's how the world trains us to think. The second way we get confused is we import the idea that the most important thing in life is happiness into our relationship with God. My relationship with God should, must, make me happy. If I'm not happy, if life is currently hard, then something is wrong with my relationship with God or with God himself. Maybe he's not all he's cracked up to be. Maybe I should just you know, give up on this Christian thing. All these things obviously massively impact on sexuality. If my body doesn't matter, my happiness is most important. And let's consider technological shifts here as well. I can have sex without worrying about the consequences of pregnancy for the most part and STDs for the most part. Then sex is simply something I do with my body for physical enjoyment. It doesn't have to have an emotional impact because what happens to my body doesn't necessarily affect who I am. Except there's a sense in which even the world does understand that it does. You know the movie plot. A man and a woman are living together as roommates and they look at each other and go, hey, you're attractive. How about we just have sex with absolutely no emotional attachment whatsoever? You agree to no emotional attachment. I agree to no emotional attachment. And the whole point of the movie is that can't happen without the emotional attachment, isn't it? And so the world lives in this confusion of, well, you know, you can have sex without it meaning anything. Oh, actually, sex means everything. That's part of the big confusion in the world on this topic today is that exact confusion. It means everything. It means nothing. To express it as who you are, well, actually, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. It's just this inconsistency that leads to hurt and brokenness. Guess where we get confused as Christians. We see the biblical value of monogamy and marriage, but we underplay the significance of joining together in one flesh that sex is and what that actually means and does to us. So sometimes we end up with what we might call serial monogamy. I'm faithful to the person I am with, but we are not married. Or we're going to get married, so we might as well live together now before we're married. After all, living in two separate homes is so much more expensive and less convenient than actually just living in one. We view sex as not that big a deal. Yeah, marriage is great, we're going to get married, but sex is not that big a deal because that's what culture teaches us. When in fact it's massive. The gospel says God gave us sex and marriage because the beauty and intimacy of sex between two people in a covenant relationship, a married man and a woman, 
points to the beauty and intimacy of the covenantal relationship between Christ and the church. And whenever it's different than one man and woman covenantally married, we're distorting the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. Next up is the impact on gender. This should be obvious at this point. If your body is not designed with an inherent order that points to how it should work, and there's no external meaning of how you should live, and what matters most is living authentic and happy lives, then any time you aren't happy with your body, change it. Why should you conform to society's idea of gender if there's no external meaning to it all anyway, and it's just a social construct? Change your gender. Have multiple genders depending on your mood. I hardly need to say where we as Christians land on this. We've, we've said we believe our bodies are designed with order and purpose and meaning as given by God. But I want to show you what happens if we simply go out there and disagree with this, on this with someone who doesn't follow Jesus. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and I should have the right to transform myself into what I believe I am. Well, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Okay, you're clearly a bigot. What right do you have to say what's right for me? Can you see what's happened? We've taken so many steps in different directions that we're now working in an entirely different world. We have a totally different understanding of what it means to be a person, the significance of our bodies, how we determine what is right and wrong. More and more, we're going to see what is already happening in some places. If the meaning of life is authenticity and happiness then imposing your viewpoint on someone else and saying you don't agree with them is infringing on what it fundamentally means to be a person, therefore you are morally wrong. Christianity on this viewpoint is then not just ignorant or illogical, but morally bankrupt. If we consider how it impacts us, we think about abortion and we say, well, a fetus is clearly human, a person made in the image of God, and we are so offended when something comes against that, well, if you believe that being an authentic person is your right to express your authentic self, you're going to be as upset when we say we disagree with you. That's the bottom line. It becomes almost impossible to argue with someone who follows the world's way of thinking on these things. There are so many ideas underpinning this that are the opposite of what we believe about, quite frankly, everything that we can't have a coherent, constructive discussion at this level. But just the thing. The gospel doesn't come and say, argue with people about the specifics of how they get it wrong. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel comes and says to everyone who has issues with identity and sexuality in and out the church, because we start with ourselves, everything you have been longing for and looking for in your sexuality and identity, that search for meaning and transcendence and acceptance and love is found in Jesus and so we engage with people at that level, not at the level of specific behavior. Jesus never engaged at the level of specific behavior, at least until people had already decided to follow him. Following the trajectory of the world's way of thinking, what I feel is ultimately what is true of me, whether that's around having sex, how I understand my gender, or anything else. Living in a world where that is the dominant narrative, what ends up happening is we followers of Jesus end up living out of our feelings instead of the Word of God. What I mean is we say things like this, I don't want to forgive them. I, I, I can't forgive them. You don't know how I feel. Or I don't feel God's love. Or I can't forgive myself even if you're telling me that God forgives me. 
I'm not saying our feelings are unimportant. The Psalms are full of David and others crying out, where are you, God? It feels like you're far from me. This sucks. But just the key difference. Because of the good news of Jesus in Scripture, there's always a but God in those moments. God, it feels like you are far from me, but God, I know you are faithful. But God, I know you rescue me. But God. And they allow what they know to be true of God through Scripture and their experience of God to rule over their emotions and their feelings. Far too often, perhaps because we live in a world that tells us that what you feel is most true of you, we let our emotions rule over what Scripture says to be true of God and our relationship with Him. The world says happiness is the most important thing, and sex makes me happy, at least in the moment, which is all that really matters. In the church, well, God obviously wants my sex life to be deeply satisfying. It must be the highest form of passion and joy. If my sex life doesn't feel like that, then something is wrong. The gospel comes in and says, whatever pleasure you may have now, no matter how amazing in the moment, it's nothing compared to the peace and joy of knowing you are loved and forgiven by God and will spend eternity with Him, experiencing the fulfillment of what all of that is pointing to. Back to the world. If sex and sexuality is happiness, then celibacy is to be avoided at all costs. Unless your authentic self is asexual, but even then you're living out of your sexuality. But in general, celibacy is to be avoided at all costs. In the church, sex is great, marriage is ideal, so if you aren't married and having great sex, you're missing out. Your life is subpar. Life is incomplete and substandard until you're married. You're getting married, right? You're not going to stay single. The gospel says living as a single for Jesus, whether it's a season or your entire life, gives you the opportunity to be used by him in a way that those of us who are married simply cannot experience. If the meaning of life is happiness, then suffering and difficulty and denial of self and self-restraint are to be avoided at all costs. And all too often, we live as the world does. We're trying to follow Jesus, but... Actually, the most important thing to us is our happiness and our self-fulfillment and the absence of difficulty. The gospel through the words of Paul. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. The world says avoid difficulty at all costs. The gospel says you're never going to be able to avoid all difficulty and suffering and hardship. But it's precisely in the midst of my difficulty that the life of Jesus comes to me the most. Every one of us struggles with our identity and sexuality. At least one of the points I've said today must have applied to you because it runs deep. It can feel absolutely overwhelming, like your mind and your body are out of control. Porn, same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria where it feels like you're in the wrong body, burning with lust, feeling like your sexuality doesn't exist or has died and that's affecting your relationship, physical and emotional hurt you've received. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about something he calls his thorn in the flesh, something in his body that he struggles to deal with. The scripture never tells us what it is, and I think that's so that it can be applied to whatever thorn in the flesh we experience, even the ones I've just described. 
Here's what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul continues, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The beauty of the gospel is that it is precisely in our weakest moments and darkest places where we are broken and wonder how anyone could possibly love and accept us if they knew the true us. That the God who knows us deeper than we know ourselves breaks in with his power and his grace, and his love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we all come before you as those who seek validation and love and acceptance in all the wrong places when our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our existence is wrapped up in you and who you've created us to be. And as we go on a journey throughout the series, I want to pray that in whatever areas we are struggling when it comes to sexuality and identity, whatever thorn in the flesh we have, that we would experience your power in our weakness. I want to, I want to be bold enough to pray that we would be able to say, actually, there is something about my weakness that I can boast in, as embarrassing as it is, as humiliating as I think it would be for others to find out about. Actually, there's something I can boast in it because when I bring it to you, my heavenly Father, I experience your power and I experience your love. And in opening that up and bringing it to you, I experience who I truly am as I'm known by you. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, uh, most messages take about between 8 and 20 hours to prepare. I think Gareth put it about 200 into that. No, I'm, I'm serious. It was about 200 hours of actually um, assimilation of material. Um, and so what was presented was a gift to us. And this is what we want to do in this series. And for some of you, you might go, wow, that was quite technical, or it doesn't, it doesn't affect me where I'm at today. And when I say over four weeks and then a break and then four weeks, here's what we're trying to do. is firstly just acknowledging that as a family, the church of God, there are areas of us who is broken and we need healing. So it starts with us. And then secondly to um, bring truth that enables us to um, see deception for what it is and not to be fearful anymore. As we see so much changing, there can be fear and we want to withdraw. We can go, no, actually, we can engage a broken community with kindness and grace because there's a firm foundation that's been placed. And then also to say, recognizing how far the worlds are apart, and it needs more than just clever arguments to engage this community. And so you can see this is a really, really difficult, uh, the first four weeks are the easy ones, the next four get really difficult. Um, 
And so uh, I'm going to uh, ask us to do a strange thing, and that is just to, with the person next to you or groups of three, let's really pray for two things. Number one is that for our community, that some of the things that we're stuck in, that we would find healing, but then for a community that as we track forward is going to get more broken and more broken, that we will display the kindness and grace and love of the person of Jesus to this community. And somehow in the grace of God, we will see healing lives, broken lives healed. So let's just do that in two, and then I'll, I'll close it in prayer.